Welcome once again to the preaching of God's Word. I'd like to ask the Lord's assistance in prayer before I begin. And I want you to understand, and I might, one of my things that I'll be praying for is that you receive the Word of God as it should be, not by uh, the feeble attempts of men to try to voice it. Remember, we are just human beings, and, and uh, you need to seek what the Lord has for us. And so uh, it may not be delivered uh, the way angels would deliver it, but I do know this, the truth of it will change your heart. Yes, the truth of it will save your soul. And so let's, let's, let's seek the Lord's face today, and let's uh, now ask Him for His assistance. Holy Father, we ask that Your Word be made clear. Give me clarity of thought and purpose. Help me to speak unfettered. Give me uh, clarity of, of purpose here. So, Father, for the glory of our Christ, may your gospel be made known. May the messages to the churches, especially this morning, to the one sent to Pergamum, may we understand the warnings and may we be encouraged by the good words. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Now, we have been going through the book of the uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we are now looking at the messages and the letters sent to the seven churches in what we call today is Asia Minor. And we are looking at the letter sent to the third church, the one in Pergamum. And this is found in uh, chapter 2 of the book of Revelation, verses 12 through 17. And so with that, I'd like to give you a very uh, brief understanding of my goal today. The goal today is to understand that the church must not be enslaved to the passions of worldly gain. These selfish passions will be the undoing of the church if we do so. If we allow compromise with the world and its teachings, the world, the Lord himself, t tells us that he will fight against us with the sword of his mouth. The Lord will remove our church if we do not listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us and to the churches. Amen. It is a common uh, doctrine taught throughout the entire Bible, but especially in the Gospels and in the epistles of the Apostles, and that is, we must be cautious, especially in the church leadership and those that are uh, receiving, uh, those that are really influential and have a lot of respect within uh, the church itself. If we have teaching that's only for worldly gain, then we are going to be in, in, in grave trouble. Peter tells us in his second epistle this, describing false teachers. They are forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You see, remember the, the admonitions at the end of every letter, the Lord says, he who overcomes, that means he who conquers. And then listen to what Peter says. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, not overcoming, but overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. These people will teach that they, they will, well, let me put it this way, they will try to gain from wrongdoing. Now, I have said many times from the pulpit that we should not be Machiavellian. There's a big word, right? 
All it means is this. We should not be willing to do wrong things to achieve good things. This is even worse than Machiavellianism. This is even worse than that because people uh, in the churches, many times, they're willing to do wrong things to get bad things, to even gain and to, and to shall we say, eat the mutton and wear the wool of the sheep. And we must be careful about that because many times our dangers are not just from within, but they are from without also. The world will try to attack us or try to change us or attempt to allow us to compromise with sin and so on. And so this is the warnings that we'll be finding in the letter to Pergamum. Let me give you a brief review of the last two letters that we looked at, one to Ephesus and one to Smyrna. Firstly, to Smyrna, because we'll kind of go backwards like this. He said at the beginning or at the end of his message that the one who conquers should not fear. They should not fear the second death. It cannot hurt us. It should says, and also says that Christ will give us the crown of life. Now the letter to the ones at Ephesus says that the one who conquers shall eat of the tree of life and we shall be in the paradise of God. And today, let's take a look at our verses that we're going to cover. And uh, we will be looking at uh, verses, let me get them for you, uh, verses 12 to 17. And so from there, I'd like to give you a brief background of the city itself, and then we'll go verse by verse. Now, Pergamum, uh, that's the way it's uh, you know given to us in the ESV, in the uh, King James Version, it'll say Pergamus. But this particular city is 55, nor 55 miles northeast of Smyrna, what we looked at last week. Pergamum is actually the, going to be the capital of the province of Asia Minor. Now, we, we saw how influential the other cities were. Ephesus was very influential. They're almost on the coast. A lot of power when it comes to trade and so on. They, they, they had the seven wonders of the world. Was One of them was there. You know, uh, uh, the great temple uh, to Diana. We also have the place in Smyrna where they were right on, uh, right on the coast and they were very powerful. However, Pergamum is going to be the capital politically of this area. They lost the advantage of having a seacoast. They're not going to be influential in trade, but they're going to be very influential in the way they um, become a center of intellectual, uh, um, shall we say, a place where people gravitate to to learn because they had over 200,000 parchment scrolls there in their library. What's unique about this center of learning is that they had previously been embargoed by uh, many foreign cities and they were unable to get writing materials, believe it or not. They weren't able to get paper from Egypt. And so they developed a brand new way of creating parchments out of animal skins and then became a repository for much of the learning in the area. So people would go there to learn. Um, the, the great Alexandrian library had many, many articles, but they there at Pergamum had 200,000 parchment rolls. Now, many of the teachings that are among these scrolls has to do with their gods and has to do with the idolatrous worship of gods. One of the great um, differences in this particular city was their worship of a god by the name of Asclepius. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I never said it that many times, but if you've ever been into a doctor's office and you saw a symbol with a rod and a snake, you know, kind of coiled around that rod, that is the rod of Asclepius. And it has to do with a God that will provide healing to those that worship this God. 
and many of the parchments has to do with people that will come and research to try to get themselves healed. There was one Caesar that had made so many trips to this city to try to get his ailments healed that he's at his own personal pharmacist there that was a specialist in this god and in the, all the potions that they had. And so this can be rightly described as a place when you approach it as it just the symbol of this serpent was everywhere. It can be easily seen or described as the throne of Satan or the place where Satan is. And they were uh, fanatical about their uh, worship of the Caesars. And so politically, they were dangerous to oppose. And culturally, they were dangerous to oppose because of the, of the pressure. And so um, uh, the people that were uh, the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were per severely persecuted here, even to the point where uh, Antipas is named in this particular letter as someone who was sacrificed uh, to, uh, to, their, um, to their worship of their gods. So let's go on to verse uh, number 12, the first one we're going to see. And it reads this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who hath a sharp two-edged sword. Now this describes the way Christ presented himself in chapter 1. Remember, it was an apocalyptic vision, and, he's, and the sword was coming right out of his mouth. And this is a, a vision that must be interpreted. It has to do with Christ is the one who provides us with the truth. He is the incarnate word of God, and this is his weapon. This is the weapon of choice. And remember that this particular sword, and traditionally, swords are weapons of, of being offensive. They're, they're, that's what you use to attack. It's not like a shield to defend yourself. This is a, a weapon of attack. But remember also that this is not a physical sword. This is the word of God. And our weapons are of the truth and of the gospel. It is not physical. We are not to take our, uh, our, um, our attack to the world with fist and with, uh, with anger and with violence. What we have is the truth of the gospel that attacks their sin. Now, they may feel differently about that. They may feel like they're being attacked, but we must always understand it is with love to the salvation of sinners that we do this. And so it is with this sword, and it's very important to keep that in mind, that this sword is our weapon, and it is, the, it is from the Lord himself. So this weapon will be the only tool that we have to bring down the strongholds of the enemy. We are not to take Molotov cocktails. We are not to, to, to take our fists or any other type of physical weapons. But it is the truth of the Word of God that will vanquish our enemies. That is how we will stand in this world. It is the Lord's Word. It comes from His mouth. Its sharpness and effectiveness comes from the Holy Spirit, and it cuts both ways, both in faith and repentance. This is our weapon. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you will not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What is encouraging about this verse is that it says, um, it is good to know that Christ knows where we live. Now, once upon a time, I had this job where I was a, a, a store detective when I was a young man. And um, I was involved in the arrest of a person, and this person uh, looked at me and said, I'm going to find out where you live, and I'm going to come for you and your family. Well, that scared me a little bit. 
you know, I was a young man, and I, this guy looked like he would do it. And so I became a little bit of afraid. But after a while, I realized that he didn't know where I lived, and the threat was empty. But what's encouraging to me here is that Christ does know where I live, and he knows where we are. We not only have a God that knows where we're at, he knows everything about us, and he wants you to know that he knows. I know where you live. And we are, be to, we are to be encouraged by this. Now, Christ says, not only does he know where we live, but it is where Satan's throne is, especially in this city. I believe that there is many similarities between living in this country and living in Pergamum. Because there are descriptions that I could say, I feel just like those citizens there. It seems like Satan's throne is here. It seems like Satan rules in the hearts of men. It is a place where they serve him with their mental and physical strength. It seems that politically, this country would like to see the church diminish. It seems that religiously, this country would like to see the church to be diminished. Even educationally, it seems like our country is attacking the word of God and our God. And culturally, it seems as though we are up against severe persecution. And so I want us to remember Christ knows where we are and he knows where we live. So this is where we need to hold fast of the name of Christ with strength in the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. I would like to say that um, we need to be able to own this for ourselves. It is what would say Satan's throne is where his will is done. But this is where we must not deny our faith. Now there is a man mentioned in this verse called Antipas. And I must say that I don't know who this is and I couldn't find out if there was a person historically. However, his name does mean a certain thing. It means something against something. And I've read several things and I don't know what to tell you about this. You know, if you believe one man, he'd say, well, that means like he's the anti, he's against the Pope. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, because, you know, the Pope wasn't there for a couple hundred years. Or it could be that he's against everyone. But I, what, I, what I can tell you is this. Jesus Christ knew his name. That's what I know. He knows his name. And all those who live for the glory of God will not deny his name. And even to the point of living, uh, uh, you, know, you know, being faithful to, to the death, he will know. And he knows us. Let's go to verse number 14. But I have a few things against you and have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, as I can see uh, among us, we have some small children. I'm going to try to choose my words carefully. Uh, but I, I need to say what's in the scriptures, but I also want to be clear. But I don't want to be inappropriate. But when we studied Balaam last week, we understood that he was hired by Balak, hired to curse God's people. Now, we are God's people. Now, there are some that would love to take a wage in cursing us. There are some that would love to gain from our demise. That's not new, is it? And that's not just back then. It is even here today. Now, we learned something about Balaam last week. We learned that he, he went 
when he tried to curse God's people, he was not permitted by God to do so. But it turns out that Balak was able to get advice and counsel from Balaam to put a stumbling block before the people. And I would like to read Numbers 31, verse 16, to prove this. It says in this chapter and verse, Behold these. Now this is Moses saying he's looking at some women of Midian because they just got done conquering Midian, who is kind of a, uh, they're, they're like collaborators with Moab. Moab was, uh, was the country where Balak was the king. And he says, Behold these. And he's talking about the women that are left. On Balaam's advice, cause the people to Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. Now you hear what he's saying? He says, these women were used as a stumbling block to be, to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. That describes where Israel was camped, where Balaam was supposed to curse them, but he could not. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So here's the advice. Balaam told Balak, I cannot curse them. However, if you take the most beautiful women and you go alongside of the camps of Israel and take with you the food offered to Baal and just offer it to them, come and say, come and eat and have company with the beautiful women and involve yourself in idolatrous activities which include sexual immorality. If you do that, they will succumb to the seduction and then God will curse them. I cannot, but I can, can, I can tell you how to get their own God to curse them. And that is exactly what happened. A plague came among the people. 24,000 men died of this plague. Not from Balaam, but the Lord brought judgment. But the judgment came from the advice of a man that wanted gain by destroying God's people. Now this is where the Lord is telling the people at Pergamum, there are some that holds the doctrine of Balaam. You need to be cautious. There's going to be people that are willing to take money or power or whatever they can get by having God's people diminished. And they're willing to be a part of it. Why? Just for gain. Just for gain. It is so sad. The similarities there in Pergamum was this. They were involved in idolatrous activity that, in, that, that was performed by immoral acts. And they were seduced by that. And you say, well, that, that surely can't happen today. Oh my goodness, the pressures we have from the government to accept sexual immorality is tremendous. Even today, across the border in Canada, preachers are being thrown into jail because they're preaching against sexual sin. They're being thrown into jail. Our country wants us to think differently about sin. They want us not to preach against it. They want us to collaborate with it. They want us to compromise. They want us to not preach against sin. And there are those that can profit from us doing that. There are those that want to have the influence over us to do that. So that's a problem, is it not? We must be ready and we must be willing to preach the gospel in all of his aspects. We must preach the righteousness of God. We must preach, must preach against sin so that the gospel can be heard by sinners who need to be saved. The next verse, verse number 15. <clears throat> and so you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
And I've got to tell you, I have no idea what, what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. But I can, do, I can say this. The Lord is saying, if you have this, then you most likely you also have that. And I would say that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is in all probability almost identical with the exception that it is being propagated by teachers within the church instead of forces outside the church. There will be people that want to be influential in a congregation. It may be pastors, it may be elders, or it may be teachers, or it may be just a person in good standing. But if they will follow Balaam and says, I can gain, and gain is much more than just money. You can gain political power, you can you know, gain status, or you can just become rich. Who knows? But there is a, there is a real temptation for the church to become tolerant of sin, to become compromising in sin. And so we have to be cautious about the influences that are within a congregation and influences that come outside the congregation. And it all boils down to a congregation that says, we are willing to correct these mistakes. We are willing to do something about it. And, it, and many times it's difficult because you see, churches are made of sinners that are being redeemed. And every one of us are people struggling with sin. That's who we are. Yeah. Now, the difference between the, the ones that are bad actors is this. Instead of repenting, instead of struggling, they're saying, can't we just compromise with it? Can't we just live with it? Can't we just find our peace with the world by just changing what we think sin is all about? Can't we just think differently about immorality? Can't we just bring it in and say, instead of struggling, let's just not just tolerate it. But you see, after a while, the outside influences and the inside influences will say not only tolerate it, but approve of it. It always goes one step further. It always goes to where we don't want it to go. Verse number 16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And you know what that means, right? It means that the truth of the gospel will be preached against those leaders and against those who are influencers. By whom? By faithful men, by faithful preachers, by those that are preaching the gospel. We must never forget that we are a congregation of saved sinners and that we should encourage each other when we see someone fall into sin. Encourage them to repent. Be there for them. Be kind. Be forgiving. But when a person says, instead of doing that, why don't we just change the definition of sin? We can all be happy. That needs to stop. That needs to be prevented. That needs to be preached against. We must never tolerate sin. We must never collaborate and compromise with sin. Amen. But instead, preach against it and embrace the repentant. Embrace each other. Support each other. Because God says, please repent. That is what he's saying. If not, I will take this church away. I will come and war against you with the words of my mouth. And this church will no longer be here. And so be it, Lord. If we ever do that, may God come and judge us. May God come and judge us. Verse number 17. He who hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, these are interesting words, are they not? I wish I knew what they meant. They said, well, 
What good are you if you don't know what it means? Well, I can give you some ideas, okay? I can give you some ideas. We are encouraged to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's number one. But it says here that he will give us of the hidden manna. I've read many ideas about this. So I'm just going to give them to you. Hopefully they will all be of good to you. This could refer to Christ himself, the hidden manna. No one out in the world knows our Christ except us. Only the one that is able to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for forgiving me of my sin. We have that hidden manna. It is the Lord himself who came down from heaven. But this could also mean that Christ, that, that the hidden manna is the work that Christ gives us to do. Remember when Christ was at the well in Samaria, when the woman was there, and he preached the gospel to her, and she received it, and she went right to the village. Now, the reason that the apostles, I mean, his disciples were not there, is that they went to buy food because they were hungry. Now, when they came back, the Lord says, I have, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. And he said, uh, they said, well, did someone bring some food? And he says, no, this is my meat. This is my food to do the will of him that sent me. And so God may say, here are my people. I have them. I'm going to give them their Christ and their gospel. And then I'll give them the mission to work. That is one possible meaning of this idea that we will have hidden manna. But it could also be, and many people believe this, that it refers to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, before they went into the Promised Land, they took the last bit of manna, put it inside the Ark, hid it away there. And it's, and to my knowledge, it's probably still there. I don't know. But it's hidden away there. But to my understanding, it, it works like this. What is the Ark of the Covenant? And what is the tabernacle itself? It's a place where God met us. It's a place where God meets sinners. And it is that hidden manna, Christ himself, within the very heart of God, at that altar where he was sacrificed, that we are going to be given that to consume for our souls. Believing on Christ, repenting of sin, that hidden manna in the very heart of God. I know this, whatever it means is to our good. It is to our good. He says that he'll give him a white stone. Well, there's another. There are probably more interpretations on this that you could shake a stick at. But just consider this. It's very encouraging that God has a gift for us. Maybe it's going to be given to us when he comes back. Or maybe it could represent something that they've already done in the past. It was a custom at the time when a man was brought before a judge, even a Roman judge, that sentence was delivered by handing a stone over. If they were innocent, they'd get a white stone. If they were guilty, they'd be given a black stone. And so to us, we're, be, we're receiving a white stone that we have been forgiven, that we have been found innocent in Christ. Also, it says that um, we would be, say, if it's a stone in, involved, Christ himself is the foundation of the temple of God with the apostles built upon them. And we are stones that are built in that temple. That is one way of looking at it. But I find it interesting that it says that our name, a new name will be written on that, that only Christ and we will know. It is not unusual for God to change the names of his believers. It's not unusual. Remember what happened to Abram? He became the father of many, many Abraham. Remember what happened to Jacob? He was a supplanter, but he became Israel, the prince with God. If you recall, Simon became Peter, a stone, and Saul became Paul. I would not doubt if God would give us new names. And you say, well, I wonder what name it is. Well, if you could think about yourself right now, 
And you would say to yourself, what name would you give yourself? Just one word, one name that you would give yourself before you were saved. And then think after you're saved. What name would you give yourself? I don't know if I would give myself a very good name before. A name that would describe who I really am. But I know this, if God saved me from that and made me someone new, I would hope that the new name would represent someone that follows God wherever he goes. And so there will be a name given to us that only he knows. Now I have some practical things for us to learn. So let's go through them. We can overcome what is arrayed against us by affirming our faith and loyalty to Christ under severe persecution. That's what we can learn from this letter to the people of Pergamum. If we embrace the truth of the scriptures, that is where we're going to find our strength. We must be vigilant and opposing any compromise against preaching against sin. We must keep ourselves clear of any idols. Now, we don't have temples here to Ephesus, you know, uh, like uh, to, the, you know, to Zeus or to, a, a, you know, to the other uh, type of idols, but we do have in our society many things that people have sold their souls to. Whether they be metaphorical or whether they be literal, we cannot involve ourselves in idolatry or immorality of any kind. We must be aware of these threats that are outside the church and inside the church. Outside the church, we have, we have educational systems that want to teach our children uh, evolution. They want to teach our children that there is no God. We have a government sometimes that it seems to be very antagonistic to the Lord. We have a media that would love to eliminate God. We have worldly pagan religions all around us. That's the outside. And there are people that gain from their influence over us. But also within the church. The church is made of repented sinners. And so we cannot say that we should always be so fighting against sin that we would fight each other. Oh, I saw you do this. Oh, I saw you do that. No, that's not us. We are patient and we are kind and we are forgiving. But when we want to ease sin by just changing the rules and compromising with it, that's when we are called to put our foot down and to preach against sin. So I'd like to add a little bit more detail to this before we go on. I can see from this passage that the Lord is trying to give us some very good information on, say, he wants us to have a strong conviction. You see, there are those that have not denied my name. He wants us to have a strong conviction. But when I look at myself, sometimes I say, Am I strongly convicted or am I just stubborn? You say, now the difference is this. When you're stubborn, you don't want to change even if you're wrong. Do you see? But when you're strongly convicted, you're still teachable from the Word of God. We must have strong convictions in the Word of God. We must not be stubborn simply to be right. We must be strongly committed to his loyalty, to be, to be loyal to God. We must own his name, even when the world wants to punish us for doing so. We must be rightly motivated. That's going to help you understand whether, you're, whether you have strong convictions or whether you're just stubborn. Are you motivated by the love of the glory of the Lord? Are you led by the Holy Spirit in, in, in loving God's honor? We must be motivated by the love of the truth of the scriptures. And how can you be mismotivated? What are the wrong motivations? Well, if you're going to be stubborn over what you believe because it keeps you safe by self-preservation, then beware. 
If you profit from this at the expense of God's people, then beware. If you have a lust for power over others, then beware. To simply, sometimes people want to have influence over others just to harvest their admiration. Sometimes they want to be served by uh, uh, these type of evil, evil things. We must decide and come to an understanding that we cannot be stubborn, but we must be, we must be strongly convicted. We, if we don't do this, we will no doubt become like the Nicolaitans. We will be willing to change our doctrine to allow ourselves to live peacefully in sin. We must have this. We must not be in opposition to the Spirit of God. So in conclusion, let me say this. I would like to read a section of Scripture from the Apostle Peter. And it's, it's, it's a long section, so I want you to listen carefully. And I'll try to lead it, read it as, par as, as well as I can. But it has to do exactly with what I'm saying. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read to verse number 22. And if you don't have your scriptures, just listen. Just listen to what I'm saying. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented by his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly out of the trials and to keep the unrighteous under the punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, behold and willful, they do not tremble as the blaspheme as they as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in mighty power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these are like irrational animals. Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, 
the son of Boor, who loved gain for wrongdoing and was rebuked for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs, their mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And the last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returned to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returned to wallow in the mire. Now, do you recognize that in our society? The dangers are from without, the dangers are from within, and we must stand passionately for God. We must understand that there are influences that we must resist. Let us take heed to what the Spirit is saying to this church. Never compromise the truth of the Bible but always have compassion for repented sinners. We must be that church. We must be that church because if not, the Lord will fight against us. I want to be a church. I want our people to be that church that is comforted by these words, not scared by these words. I want us to have that relationship with the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we now ask that you would be among your people now. We know that you know where we are. You have given us of your spirit to comfort us. You have told us that if we read this book, we will be blessed, and we are. So, Father, we ask now, help us to stand firmly. Help us to own your name in this day of conflict. Help us to be true and help us to have strong convictions. Deliver us from stubbornness. Deliver us from, from trying to justify our own sin, but instead to live daily lives of repentance, to trust you only. So, Father, give us this grace, we pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. May our will be your will. So, Father, we ask, lift up Christ. Make your gospel clear. Have sinners be saved for your glory all around the world, and especially in our congregation. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.